Hey, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. So excited about what we have going on. And we're going to be speaking about the goodness of God, courtesy of Dr. Micah Green. Uh, Micah grew up here in Borger, Texas, graduated from Borger High School back in 1998, uh, went on to Texas Tech University, uh, where he got his undergraduate work. Then he went to MIT to get his PhD in chemical engineering. And while he was there, just for fun, he thought he'd go to Harvard Divinity School while he was there just for something to do. And so uh, Micah uh, has been kind of going around uh, different places and, you know, speaking about what it means to, uh, to love the Lord in, in, in a way that uh, is in agreement with our, with our reason, with our intellect. And so uh, just so, so proud of him. I just want you to know that uh, when I see Micah up here, he was in my youth group back in the day and uh, just seeing him uh, doing the things that he's doing. But probably what I'm most proud about is he's a beautiful family. His wife, her name's Heather Denton. Uh, she grew up in Faith Covenant Church way back in the day. And Micah and Heather have four beautiful children. And again, we're just so thrilled to have Dr. Micah Green here with us, uh, Sharon. So uh, we're going to be talking about the goodness of God. And this is going to be so appropriate. When Micah told me he wanted to talk about this, I have to admit, I was thinking, I'm not really sure we can talk about this in church all the time. But in the world around us, there's really some doubt right now. I don't doubt that God's real, but I do doubt that he's good. And so this is very, very important today. Parents, please tune in. Please listen. Uh, please shore up what you believe about the goodness of God today. So let's give a warm Borger welcome to Dr. Micah Green. Thanks, buddy. Howdy. Oh, sorry. In College Station, this is what Aggies do. I have to live with Aggies all the time. We say, howdy, and everybody says, howdy back. So let's try it. Howdy. Howdy. I just realized I did that without even thinking about it. Um, it is great to be with you today. I, I told people at the first session, uh, this place and this date are very special. Uh, this date, September 10th, is my mother's birthday. So happy birthday to my sweet mom, uh, Jamie Green. And this date is also important because September 10th, 19... Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. September 10th, 1986, here in Borger, I was seven years old, and that is the date that I prayed to receive Christ. So it's a special day. And as Les mentioned, um, today, this is also a special place, uh, Faith Covenant is a place. I began to kind of hang around a little bit, wander around a bit in uh, early 1997, hoping to, to uh, catch the affection of a young lady who I've now been married to for 18 years, named Heather Denton. So this is a very special place. Um, today, our sermon text is the following. <clears throat> First Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I've known this verse for a long time. I want you to see that, uh, you know, we always are told in Ephesians 4 that Christians speak with truth and love. And there's truth and love here, right? Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, that sounds like truth. Explaining why you believe what you believe. Maybe you're explaining to yourself. Maybe you're explaining to your family. But we don't do it to say like, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. We do it in a way that shows gentleness and respect because the people you're talking to are made in the image of God and Jesus loves them. Something strange has happened though. I used to think that this verse was primarily about explaining to people why Christianity is true. I thought it was about explaining why Christianity is true. So we mentioned in the early session, 20 years ago, people were likely to say things like, 
oh, you know, you Christians are such goody goodies. You're very good people. You're very nice people. And that's very lovely. But is your faith actually true? That was the question that faced us. They said, is Christianity true? Um, In case y'all have not noticed, something has changed where the church is no longer looked at as automatically the paragon of virtue. They're actually very, the outside world is unlikely to say, oh, Christians are so good. In fact, they say, are you sure this is good? Is your faith good? I'm not even going to listen to any truth claims because I'm not so sure that Christianity is good. I'm going to give you a provocative question to kind of illustrate this point. And I'm just going to tell you now the question is provocative and this is not the main point. I just wanted you to see that this is what the culture is asking. I want you for a moment, imagine someone says the following to you. If your church is against same-sex marriage, then I'm not interested in anything you have to say about Jesus. Same-sex marriage is not our main topic today. I put this question up there because I think you're likely to hear it. There are lots of ways we can respond. I want you to think, Let's take 15 or 20 seconds. Just think, how would you respond to someone who said this to you? Some of you, your mind immediately went political. And you thought, this is someone who's on a, politically on a different team than me, and so I'm going to be dismissive of them. I don't really care what they think. They're, they're uh, my opponent. I don't think that works. I don't think that works. We're talking about a person who Jesus loves, a person made in his image, who needs the gospel. We can't just be dismissive of them. I think you may also be mistaking the context where this is happening. This is not an argument that happens on TV between two talking heads. This is an argument that happens within families. This is a discussion that's happening at the tables of middle schools across Texas, including that one across the street. So how else can we respond? Some of you may think like, well, maybe we can give like a positive vision which show like God's plan for marriage and sexuality is actually good and beautiful. Seems like a good idea to me. I don't know if you'll get a hearing, but it's a good idea. Some of you may be thinking like, this is a weird thing for someone to say, this line in purple. This is a weird thing for someone to say. We have to like agree on a certain predetermined list of things before we can even have a discussion. That's weird. I'll tell you where my mind first went. I've heard uh, pastors like Tim Keller said the same thing. I thought, this is weird that this person is using a question like, do we approve of same-sex marriage or not as a filter for truth? That's really weird. So my tendency, especially having lived in pretty secular places on the East Coast, um, I would say like, let's set the same-sex marriage question aside for a moment. We don't need to use that as a truth test. Here's a better question. Let's just You and me talk. Who is this Jesus person? Who did he claim to be? What do we know about him? What happened to him? What do we make of him? Because if you come to the conclusion, as I have, that Jesus really is the son of God, that changes everything, everything else. That's how I would have responded two years ago. But you see that when I say something like that, I'm still kind of in the mode of trying to answer their question, is Christianity true? And that's not what they're asking. This person is concerned that Christianity is not good. They think by not affirming same-sex marriage, marriage, we are being hateful, bigoted, and actually dehumanizing other people, that we're denying their dignity. So maybe we can get somewhere with that. So let's go on to this next slide. Effectively, what they're saying 
They think that being against same-sex marriage, not affirming same-sex marriage, inherently uh, uh, denies someone else's dignity. It dehumanizes them. So the assumption behind their statement is this. They're saying it is always wrong to deny human dignity. Oppressing others, putting others down is always wrong, and I cannot be a part of something that is oppressive. Denying someone else's rights is wrong. Denying someone else's dignity is wrong. We may be able to find a point of commonality here. I believe that it's wrong to oppress other people's rights. I don't think disagreeing with them on marriage is quite fits the bill. But this second statement, I can kind of say like, okay, I kind of see where you're coming from. Maybe we have some common ground. Maybe we can build, uh, build, build together on that. What we should really ask, though, is, so you said oppressing others is wrong. Denying other people's dignity is wrong. How do you know that? Does science prove it? Does science prove that it's wrong to deny other people their rights? Does science prove that you should not do things? It turns out science doesn't say anything about that. Science tells you what does happen. It doesn't say anything about what should happen. So if I ask all of you, how do you know we should respect people's rights? How do you know we should treat people with dignity? If you're an American, like I am, you're very tempted to say like, it's obvious. It's obvious. Let's see if y'all recognize this quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain, that's a hard word, with certain rights. Where does this word, anybody recognize this phrase? Where does this come from? It's in the Declaration of Independence. Who wrote it? Thomas Jefferson, very good. So all Americans were like, how do we know that oppression is wrong? How do we know it's wrong to deny other people their rights or deny them their dignity? How do we know it? Thomas Jefferson says, ha ha, I have an easy answer to that question. It's self-evident. It's obvious. I don't even need to tell you where I came from. Everybody knows that. And in our society, we all kind of agree. It's obvious. Everybody knows this. We all agree this is to be true. We don't even have to back this up. What I'd like to do for the next few minutes is use this question to change the way you think about whether Christianity is good, to change the way you think about the New Testament church, the New Testament context, and your own context. It turns out, I think Thomas Jefferson might be wrong. I think he's right that all men are created equal. I think he's right that all men are endowed by the creator with certain rights. But when Thomas Jefferson says, it's obvious, it's self-evident, I think he may be off. I'll show you what I mean as we go forward. What we're going to do, I want you to imagine stepping into a time machine. We're going to go backward in time. We're going to go to the year 123 AD. And if you have trouble picturing, what would, a, what would the people even look like back then? We don't have a lot of portraits of anybody from the ancient world. We don't even hardly know what any of them looked like. With one exception, there is one particular case where we actually have portraits of people from the ancient world. Do y'all see this woman? This particular piece, I first saw it probably 20 years ago in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. This is what's called a Fayum portrait. It's from Northern Egypt. And when people would live, people, they, basically the, these Egyptians, uh, this is Roman Empire, but still the Egyptians would paint a lifelike portrait of someone and then put that portrait on the body when this person died. And because it was buried with the body, these are actually the only portraits of ancient people that we have. 
she kind of looks normal. She looks like she could go to this church. We don't know too much about her. We know she's from the late first century, early second century in Northern Egypt from a city like Alexandria. So I'd like to take this woman as just an example, a random Roman citizen that we can talk to about her culture. This is the culture that the New Testament was born into. So let's, let's, uh, let's give her a name. We'll choose the name Macrina. You all say that? Macrina. Okay. This is, it turns out is a kind of an important name. So we don't know much, that much about her. We'll say her name is Macrina. She lives in a city like Alexandria. Alexandria is in Northern Egypt. It's named after Alexander the Great. It's part of the Roman Empire. Even though it's Egyptian, it's part of the Roman Empire and they mostly speak Greek. And let's ask her about her society. Let's ask her about what she believes. In particular, let's get on this. Let's, let's ask her about this topic of oppression and rights and dignity. So I'm going to ask her several questions. We're, ask, we're going to ask about equality, dignity, compassion, and then a very important one, consent. Let's ask her what she thinks about these topics. So you approach Macrina. We've now like been, been transported to uh, the year 123 AD. We're in Alexandria, Egypt, and you approach Macrina and you say, hi. She says, hello. You say, I've been having some arguments with some of my friends. I'm from a different country. We've been arguing about this topic of, 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 of uh, you know, oppression. You agree that oppression is wrong. What are you talking about? Well, you think that all people are equal, right? It's self-evident. Equal in what? Height? No. Uh, how do we ask her? How should we ask her? Equal in like value, People all have rights. People are equal in value and dignity. All people are equal. Do you believe that? Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. In fact, nature kind of teaches us the opposite. She gives you a quote from the famous philosopher Plato. Plato says, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. Plato's student Aristotle says, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. People are not equal. That's what they believe. Aristotle is a little more blunt in case you're wondering like, okay, so who's like the top of the ladder and who's at the bottom of the ladder? Here's what Aristotle says. He says, I'm thankful, first, that I'm a human and not a beast. Second, that I'm a man and not a woman. And third, that I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. Do you hear that ladder, that hierarchy? He didn't believe all people are equal. So you ask Macrina, well, but everybody has rights, right? Like at least people are equal under the law. Do you believe that? And she tells you a story. <clears throat> it turns out a few years earlier, a Roman senator had been killed by one of his slaves. So you know what they did? You could think, well, they executed that slave, right? They executed every slave in that senator's household, about 400. You think, that's horrible. These people didn't do anything. Macrina said, yeah, but they're slaves. They don't have any value. They don't have any rights. So you ask Macrina, well, do you at least believe, so it seems like you don't really believe in equality. You don't believe that all people have dignity. Do you at least have compassion? 
Do you have compassion on people who are less fortunate? Compassion on people who are poor? Compassion on people who are sick or diseased? You take care of people who are in trouble. You take them to the hospital. What's a hospital? There are no hospitals. Such a thing does not exist. You then tell Macrina, say, I hear something. What am, it sounds like someone is crying. This is coming from far away, but I'm hearing something. What is that? And she does not answer you. I'll let the historian, Tom Holland, describe this. And I'll just tell you now, this is going to be hard to hear. Across the Roman world, wailing, at the sides, wailing at the sides of roads or on rubbish heaps, babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down a drain there to perish in the hundreds. The odd eccentric philosopher aside, few had ever queried this practice. Indeed, there were cities who by ancient law had made a positive virtue of it, condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state Sparta, one of the most celebrated cities in Greece, had been the epitome of this policy, and Aristotle himself had lent it the full weight of his prestige. Girls, in particular, were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. The noise you hear are abandoned babies. Their parents take them to the dump and leave them there. The ancient term for this is exposure, to expose a baby. Aristotle had written, let there be a law that no deformed baby be raised. Instead, it should be exposed. Finally, you ask Macrina about consent. You're like, at least consent is a thing, I hope. And she says, like, not really. Wives are supposed to be chaste. Men do what they want. And if someone higher than you on the ladder, a Roman citizen, a man, they want something, they get it. This is a society that holds consent in pretty low regard. This is a society where a prostitute costs the same as a loaf of bread. And then Macrina said, you came in here and you said, you think oppression is wrong? I have news for you. Oppression is normal. And our society here in the Roman Empire is not unusual. This is the norm across all of human history. Oppression is normal. So you get back in your time machine. You're a little shaken by this whole thing, I can imagine. You reset the time machine. We've gone back 1,900 years. Let's go back forward 1,900 years. Come back to 2023. But you make a mistake. You make a mistake and you only go forward 10 years, you're still in Alexandria, it's now 133 AD, you step out of your time machine and you see Macrina again. And she says, hey, I know you. I talked to you like 10 years ago. And you're like, yeah, it was like yesterday for me. But you notice that she has a very different feel. She's like, so it's you, you were asking me those questions. Have you heard? Have you heard? And you say, heard what? And she's like, and she takes a stick 
And she makes this weird mark on the ground. You look at that mark. That is not any letter in Greek or Latin that I know. Maybe it's an Egyptian letter. She looks at you. She gives you the stick. And then finally you realize what she wants you to do. You're like, oh, you make your mark. And you say, a fish? She says, yes, a fish. You know about Jesus too. You say, why, why, why is the fish the symbol? She says, well, the word fish in Greek is ichthus. We use it as an acronym, Jesus Christ, God's son, the savior. In the last 10 years, I found a group of people here in Alexandria and they're different from everyone else. They're different from everyone else. We follow Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God's son sent to save us from our sins and create a whole new way of living. And things are completely different from how it used to be. You see, explain more. What do you mean? You remember that quote from Aristotle earlier where he said he's thankful that he's a human and a man and a Greek. We say there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave, neither slave nor free, no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. In our church, that's where we meet in our church, the rich and the poor sit side by side. The master and slave address each other as brothers or sisters in Christ. Because every single person is made in the image of God and every single person is valuable to Jesus. So we live differently now. We live differently than the rest of the Roman Empire around us. We show compassion on the poor. We say, God made man in his image. Why is it wrong to oppress people? Why is it wrong to hurt someone? Because that person is made in God's image. That's the reason. We show compassion on the poor. In Proverbs, it says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So that means when you go out and you show kindness to someone, you're honoring God because that person, no matter how poor or destitute they are, are made in the image of God. And that word you said, hospital, we're trying to build a center to try to take care of the poor of our city, the sick of our city, the diseased of our city. And then you ask her, what about that noise that I heard earlier? She says, imagine that baby abandoned in the dump and the baby cries and cries and cries. Normally that baby would cry until they died. But this time something different happens. Someone goes to the dump. That baby is taken up in someone's arms. And someone says, our savior was born in a stable. Wasn't much nicer than this. And our savior says, let the little children come to me. So we believe the same thing. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We've now created something that never existed before, which are orphanages to care for these children, right? So the Roman citizens enter the dump, leave a baby there. We go back into the dump and we take those babies out and save them because Jesus cares about those little children. By the way, I walked in today and saw this. CareNet Pregnancy Center 
do you see what a beautiful tradition that you're part of? One funny thing is that there was so much kindness from the church toward the poor and the destitute of the cities that this, this pagan Roman emperor says, while the pagan priests neglect, neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. Now there's a church name for you, Hated Galilean Church of Borger, right? I want you all to think about this imagery of the, the, the babies being collected from the dump and raised and treated like they're made in God's image. I'll ask you again, is Christianity good? Yes. It's a lot easier to see then. You also ask Macrina, you're like, well, uh, what about consent? She says, we do things very differently. I'm married now, and my husband doesn't act like the culture around. My, my husband doesn't treat me like I'm less than. Here's what my husband believes. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Women are viewed differently in the church. So you asked earlier, is oppression wrong? The answer is yes. Oppression is wrong. Why? Because God created man in his own, in, in, in his own image. Every single person made is, is made in God's image and every person, single person is so valuable that Jesus died for them to redeem them. That changes the way we treat each other. That changes the way that we run our church. You also asked Macrina, like, you have another symbol, not just a fish, right? Do you have another symbol? She says, yes, I do. We use this symbol. All my Roman friends, they kind of don't like this symbol. They, say, they think crucifixion, that's like the most humiliating, horrible way to die, right? This is what the powerful do to the weak. They execute them in the most painful, humiliating way to show that the power, they have power and the weak don't and don't cross them. And yet we as Christians wear this symbol to show that Jesus, he was tortured and executed and that was his victory, right? That wasn't the story. The Romans get mad. I mean, mostly they just think we're weird, but sometimes they get mad. They say like, will you say that Caesar is Lord? And we say, no, Jesus is Lord. And they say, the guy who was crucified, yes. Now you got it. They think that's very strange. They also think that our church is full of women and slaves and all the weak and botched of the world. And that's exactly right. That's who Jesus loves, right? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In Acts 17, as Paul and Silas are going around, the people of the city, they, leave in an up, they, they, they cause this uproar. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. That's exactly right. The weak, the foolish, that's who God chooses. Before we leave our time machine and come back to the present, I want you to kind of recognize how much you owe to Macrina's church there in Alexandria. If I ask you, when did your family become Christian? Some of you may be like, oh, my family's always been Christian. No, they have not. Absolutely not. The reality is that the early church in the 100s and 200s was already beginning a missionary movement, right? Churches in Alexandria and Antioch, Corinth, Athens, Rome. They want to send missionaries out farther to the farthest reaches of the world. They sent, church, they sent missionaries to places like Gallia, Germania, Britannia, and maybe as far as even Hibernia right? If you're wondering, like, what are those places? France, Germany, Britain, Ireland. These are my ancestors. The only reason that you know about Jesus is because of the faithfulness of your sisters and brothers in Christ like Macrina. I'll tell you something else that's interesting. That church in Northern Egypt has existed continuously since then, endured much persecution, 
and a couple of members of the Egyptian church uh, now go to my church in College Station, Yusuf and Nada. Yusuf is a PhD student in engineering at Texas A&M. And about five minutes ago, he began teaching Texan college students about Jesus in that church. We still owe a great debt to the church in Egypt, even now. Isn't that amazing? So as we go forward, I want you all to kind of recognize this distinction that we just made between, for Macrina, it was really obvious, right? From, from, we went from 123 when she wasn't a Christian and living in a horrible place. And then 10 years later, she's part of a church within that same horrible place. And the distinction between the church and the culture around it could not be more stark, right? Because it went from a pre-Christian society to a Christian society. And the church shone like a light. There's a great song, a praise song called King of Kings. And it has this beautiful phrase, the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame. So you can imagine a little match or a torch shining in the darkness. That's what her church is like, right? Very different. But you and I live in a slightly different time. Our society is secularizing. It's becoming post-Christian. And most of the people we live around are saying, hey, all those ideas about human dignity and equality, I would like to keep that. I may get rid of the Jesus who started it all, but I'd like to keep that part. It's like they want Jesus' kingdom, but they don't want the king. I hope this changes for you the way you think about whether Christianity is good and what effect it's had on the world. We live in a very weird time now, a very weird time where there's a lot of Christian trappings and ideas floating around, even among people who don't actually claim the name of Jesus. Much of what inspired the ideas behind this sermon was a book by Glenn Scrivener. He's an Australian, but he's a pastor in the UK. And the book is entitled, The Air We Breathe. You may think you live in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, but in reality, you live in a culture that is saturated in Christianity. It is the air we breathe. That's what that idea comes from. So most of you here today are Christians. The culture might feel hostile to your faith, but it's, in reality, it is soaked in Jesus's values. We think, obviously, humans have dignity. Obviously, humans have rights. Obviously, oppression is wrong. That is Jesus talk. It is. And the reason that people don't recognize it is we've kind of gotten used to it. So what I want to encourage you to do is for you to show your friends, show your family, show the outside world that Jesus's values are revolutionary and beautiful. I don't know about you, but when I hear a story like Macrina's, I think how much the church would stand out from the culture around it. We have to show people that same contrast between a culture without Jesus and a culture with Jesus. There may be a few of you here in the room who are skeptics, who are still like, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. And to actually accept it, to accept that someone rose from the dead seems like it's just too much to believe. So some of you skeptics may feel like you have to take a leap of faith. Some of you may recognize this still from a movie. This is from uh, the third Indiana Jones movie, which in my opinion is the best one, where he has to take a leap of faith to get across this chasm in order to complete his quest. And we think like, I don't want to take a leap of faith that seems irrational, It seems irrational to put my faith that this miracle was done, that this man was resurrected from the dead. How can I believe that? What I hope I've shown you today is that as a Christian, I am not asking you to take a leap of faith. I'm telling you, you already have. You believe in a bunch of things that science can't prove. If you believe in human dignity and human rights and that oppression is wrong, you already believe much of what Jesus taught. But you can't get there. You can't get there without the man himself. 
you need to recognize that the reason that we find concepts like equality and freedom and dignity and the rights of babies and women, we find these things normal because a ragtag group of, of uneducated fishermen and, women's and women and slaves turned the world upside down with the message of Jesus. That's the church. That's why Christianity is beautiful and good. If you'd pray with me, let's pray. Lord, I want to lift up the church in Egypt right now. I thank you for the impact they've had on all of us and the way that the early church especially um, changed the way we think about each other, the way we treat each other. I pray for Borger, Texas. I pray for this church that that same sense of revolution that Jesus changes everything, that would seep into every word that we say. The fact that we treat people like they're made in the image of God, I pray that that would come across in every conversation that we have. I pray that the unbelieving world would see what an amazing revolution you've started. Thank you for this passage we read in 1 Peter. I pray that you would help us all to make a defense, not just that what we believe is true, but that it is good and beautiful. I pray that as we share our faith, that you through your Holy Spirit would give us the words to say and give us the character to live it out. Thank you for this church and all the people who are here. I especially pray for the, the kiddos who are having these same conversations across the table. I pray that they can show that um, your love for other people really is revolutionary. You know what I pray? Amen.